This is an ABC podcast. And good morning. I'm your host, Aggie Dubol, and this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. We'd like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Well, I hope you did have a great weekend as we kick start off a brand new week. So today on the show, we've got will and should Papua New Guinea's Prime Minister, James Marape, resign after the recent deadly riots. Reports showing unregulated and illegal fishing in the Pacific need greater monitoring. And a mysterious death at sea for an Ikiribas family has been made into a gripping documentary. For more on any of these stories, stay tuned. I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, though, Papua New Guinea Governor for East Sepik Province, Governor Alan Bird, says he would resign if he was Prime Minister and says that Prime Minister James Marape should make tough decisions. His comments come after a growing number of MPs have called for the resignation of Mr Marape as the grace period preventing a vote of no confidence expires next month. Alan spoke to our ABC's reporter, Terry Lepani. A number of MPs are now calling on the Prime Minister to resign. What are your thoughts on the Prime Minister stepping down? And what do you anticipate happening come the February Parliament sitting when the vote of no confidence grace period expires? Um, In terms of the Prime Minister stepping down, uh, look, I think that's his decision. First of all, um, if I was Prime Minister, I would have resigned. But on the other side, I mean... Who do we replace James Marape with? Uh, he, him or any other prime minister? I, I've, I've been in parliament under two different prime ministers, and my my issue is that we have no guarantee a new prime minister is going to be any different. You know, what I'm hoping is that James Marape will uh, take the hard decisions. Um, you know, uh, do a strong reshuffle, put in ministers who are competent, who are going to go about and do the work. You know, and I've told him so personally. I've said, look, PM, you can't be rewarding people just for loyalty, you know. Um, We need our best people as ministers, you know. You know, reactions are going to become more and more normal. Um, So, and like, if I'm to blame the prime minister, not just the prime minister, but all the ministers, and I guess those of us who are in government, I would blame us for being slow. I would blame us for being incompetent. And I would blame us all for being... Uh, really slow and lazy. We've been slow and lazy in, in, in dealing with these issues and, you know, we're, we're guilty of that. And I think several governments have been guilty of that. We've got four or five million unemployed people, you know, what do we do about that? We still have no solutions inside. It's not an easy thing to answer, but if it was me, I would fix the immediate problems and I would go about seriously looking at how we create jobs for our people. Our people need work and they need to earn money and they need to look after themselves, you know, and we've got to look at the rising cost of living. We've got to look at all those things. And that is Papua New Guinea Governor for East Sepik Province, Alan Bird, ending that report from Terry Lepani. As we stay in PNG, where the government says it will supply around 300 million kina in relief to businesses affected by riots. Now, the cost of widespread unrest early this month is estimated to be over 1 billion kina. And much of the damage was inflicted upon local taxpaying shops and businesses in the capital, Port Moresby. So to talk more about the relief package, we're joined by PNG. 
KPMG economist Malopa Lavelle. With that, I say welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Malopa, you know, if we start off and we get right into this, I mean, what sort of assistance is the government uh, going to supply and how will businesses be able to access it? So, um, as you said, uh, they've announced 350 million kina total package. Um, 200 million kina will be an SME, uh, small to medium enterprise subsidy. And 150 million kina will be uh, the state um, investing in these companies and having a share of the equity. Uh, that's 350 million kina in total. In addition to that, they'll have um, priority in accessing foreign exchange. Uh, to um, uh, sort of uh, restock when they're importing. Um, so there'll be ease in importing. Um, but that's still a lot less than what um, uh, the total loss has been. So it's been 1.3 billion Kina. Um, and if these businesses um, don't have, uh, are not awarded all of the uh, the help that they're needed, they might consider class action against government. Yeah, well, with the three hundred million of relief that the government is promising, obviously, that sounds like is it really going to cut it? No, I don't think so. Um, it's a lot less than what um, uh, they've suffered in total, um, and, and it's not just these businesses. It's uh, farmers that used to supply those large retail companies that have been affected. So, farmers, farmers, uh, the other um, uh, small to medium enterprises that used to supply services to those and the jobs that have been affected. So um, these companies have not cut jobs yet, but they've indicated in total of about 2,692 jobs that are really kept um, in waiting. And if they're not um, really compensated the loss that they've suffered, then uh, these jobs uh, may be lost as well. Uh, Maloba, can you just clarify how then can the businesses access the money that is supposedly would go to these businesses? So, um, government has uh, uh, they've announced a task force um, to uh, really um, set in. There's a committee in place, um, and then uh, the, these businesses will also talk to the banks as well um, to prioritize accounts and fast track transactions. So, so, so government is um, in place already um, uh, talking. To, uh, so they've got a committee, um, and they've established a. Um, Sort of an office that will facilitate all of these uh, these claims, and the money in place will be directed through um, that office to um, help those businesses. Are you aware of whether or not there is a timeline on when they need to access this? Well, they've indicated this week. Um, the government has also indicated this week that um, that office will be set up, but um, as yet, we're yet to see it really um, set up and start helping businesses. Mm. What sort of impact do you think this will have on the government's bottom line? Because when we think about the recovery spending, do you think that'll detract from other critical services like health and education? Um, It it will. Um, We know that government in the past, when they've um, uh, really, when revenues have failed to hit target or when there's um, a natural disaster like um, the earthquake in 2018, a lot of um, funds were redirected from um, development spending, so um, f- spending for infrastructure to um, provide uh, earthquake relief in 2018, uh, to um, cater for other spending that was outside budget that happened during the year. So uh, government will likely redirect from capital uh, 
spending and um, won't touch uh, day-to-day operational spending. Mm, yeah, because there has been concern, uh, you know, that Port Moresby may run out of food and other essential goods after the looting, of course. So are people in the capital actually able to buy things that they need? They have. Um, so 20 businesses were affected, but other businesses worked and other shops were not. And the larger retail centres were not as well. So they've really been um, able to... Uh, uh, keep supply or at least maintain supply in the city. Um, fuel hasn't run out yet. Um, we saw queues um, the day after uh, the riots, but that has um, subsided. Um, but the, the danger is that um, prices will go up. Um, that has been addressed in the state of emergency. Uh, the state of emergency will end this Friday. So it's um, so, so really in the, in the city and plus in other major urban centers like Leigh and Kokopo really have to uh, focus on uh, getting those smaller retail shops that were affected uh, to rebuild again and uh, to open shop. But with everything that's happened, even though the state of emergency ends this Friday, do you think it needs to be extended? Um, not so much. Um, the state of emergency will, um, uh, uh, when it ends, uh, we'll let um, mobility return. Um, it'll see uh, the military um, be removed from the city. But I think the police have come back. And that was the important thing. The police stood on on Wednesday, um, on January 10. Uh, and um, when they've come back and resumed duties, I think uh, things will uh, return to the normalcy that we saw uh, before the riots. Mm. Uh, just previously, we heard a little piece there from the governor of East Sepik province talking about the government being a little bit slow and lazy. Um, and because, again, $300 million doesn't seem to cut it, will there be a point where people may be able to access a little bit more if, if need be? Yes, we're hoping there will be. Um, government has uh, said that it, it will um, continue to work with the businesses to address the needs going forward. Um, uh, my sense is the 300 million kina was a me- an immediate response to uh, both an immediate response and within what government could make available immediately. Um, and I think going forward, um, government will work with these businesses to address their needs and uh, to make sure that at least, if if not all of their needs are met, at least most of them are. Mm. Uh, Mahalo, you know, PNG's Prime Minister has also pledged to find jobs. And I understand you said there was about 2,000 odd uh, jobs for young people in the country. Now, he's referring to himself as their father. Now, is this a realistic promise by the PM? I mean, has he given any details as to how this will be achieved? Well, um, previous governments have always banked on um, uh, new resource projects coming on board and um, boosting uh, the private sector um, to expand and uh, to absorb the workforce that aren't being employed. Uh, We know that um, there are a few gold mines in the offing. Um, uh, For example, Pogera is reopening uh, this year, the Pogera gold mine, Wafi uh, Goldpool gold mine may come on. Um, this year as well, and then the construction phase of the large Papua LNG project. So, so um, that may provide upwards of ten thousand jobs in the short term, and then um, the spillover benefits as well. But really, banking on new resource projects has been uh, has been sporadic, um, has not been um, sustainable, and so government and previous governments have have really failed to address that. And we know, I mean. Uh, uh, there's about 
over 300,000 formal sector um, a workforce of um, that are employed um, formally, and there's about five million um, that aren't being employed. So government really has to look at um, absorbing that and 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 um, getting these people incomes, and not um, just um, uh, seeing them um, employed in the informal sector. Uh, and you, would we think about the economy itself then, Mahalopa? Um, despite the riots, do you feel the economy is okay? They are sitting at a sustainable state. Yes, they are. Um, although um, these businesses are affected, um, the larger uh, sectors of the economy, particularly the agriculture sector, I have the resource sector, um, you have the um, uh, uh, construction um, sector, and then the large uh, wholesale sector that really underpin the economy uh, are still stable. So although 2,000 jobs uh, were affected, um, the, the the economy as a whole will continue. Mm. Um, and I, I really believe that, um, the estimates of, for example, GDP growth, um, it, uh, tax revenue to government and, and the other, um, macro estimates should be met this year. Absolutely. And look, uh, Malopo, we really appreciate your time this morning just to give us a little bit of an insight, uh, uh, this morning. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. No worries. That is PNG economist Malopo Laville. Welcome back to Pacific Beat as we stay and continue our report in PNG. Now where the Department of Health is warning people to avoid prescription drugs being sold on the streets following the looting and last week's deadly riots. The country is in a two-week state of emergency after riots centred in the capital Port Moresby, leaving 22 people dead and several businesses destroyed. The government is now concerned looted products, including prescription drugs from pharmacies, are being sold illegally. Ken White a public health specialist with the health department spoke to reporter Mackenzie Smith. The, um, about three or four uh, city pharmacy outlets were broken into and uh, medical supplies were looted. So it's, it's out on the out on the streets in the community. So we didn't want them to like use it without a proper prescription. That's why I had to uh, put out the uh, advert. Are there any pharmaceuticals in particular that have been taken that are of concern to you? Well, all medicines are dangerous uh, unless they are prescribed by uh, trained uh, doctors and appropriate medical personnel. Uh, all, all drugs, especially the prescribable drugs, are dangerous and uh, the department has a responsibility to make sure that the quality is being maintained through the pharmaceutical board. And uh, pharmacies are, are licensed and uh, they are allowed to bring medical supplies by, through the approval of the pharmaceutical board. And the department is the regulating authority, so that's what the pharmaceutical board does. Uh, and we expect people to have access to medicines through our health outlets, whether it be in the public health system or through the fund, uh, private system. And there are drugs that are, uh, can be sold on ourselves, like uh, paracetamol. And, but those um, prescribable drugs, they have to be prescribed by uh, medical officers and medical authorities and not uh, just sold on the streets. So there's a danger when people just go and buy things thinking that 
medicines are medicines. Does this mean there are now drug shortages in those areas affected by the riots? Within Port Moresby, it's not a country, so it's within Port Moresby. Uh, there are still outlets of city pharmacies as well as other private pharmacies within Port Moresby. They are, they are open, and then the public health system, it, it's open. So it's it's not about running short of uh, drugs. It's about um, uh, some of their city pharmacies are open. Uh, so thanks to city pharmacy, they will uh, people can go for those prescriptions and then uh, to our, our public health system. So those opportunities are available, but uh, people using them indiscriminately, that's that's our worry as a health system because no drug, no drug is safe without appropriate uh, prescriptions by, as I said, the trained people and medical officers. How disappointed are you that people would take medical supplies that others desperately need? Oh, it's uh, when it was as part of a looting, so you can't control the public. They just went in and uh, when it's part of those, the pharmacies are within uh, the, the shops, like the stop and shop uh, chain of companies. So when they, you know, like public uh, looted them, they would have just uh, go and grab them. Uh, apart from the medicines, other things do so. Uh, that's why we do for the for public safety. I have to alert them that uh, they just can't take medicines and drink them or use them. And that is Ken Wai, a public health specialist with PNG's health department, speaking with Mackenzie Smith. Pacific Beat. Now, Pacific fisheries experts are hoping new research will encourage governments to invest more in monitoring illegal and unregulated fishing. A report released this month by the NGO Global Fishing Watch found that around 75% of fishing vessels worldwide aren't tracked. So raising concerns, these ships should be engaged in unreported fishing. Mackenzie Smith with this report. The wide open ocean might seem like a good place to hide, But satellites and artificial intelligence are being used to track down fishing boats that have previously gone unseen. We have lots of romantic ideas about the ocean and how it is a place that's kind of this frontier. But along with that, it also (laughs) has been historically lawless and that it needs to change if we're to manage it well. The study was conducted by the NGO Global Fishing Watch and published in the science journal Nature. Researchers identified boats using satellite imagery and cross-checked them with publicly available data to establish which vessels failed to broadcast their positions. The NGO's research director, David Krudzma, says the findings confirm that fishing largely operates outside of public view. You know, it's no longer this wild frontier. It's a place that's being industrialized. It's a place where fishing activity is competing with shipping and offshore energy. um, And we need to have good information about where things are happening. He says while the data is a start, it can only tell which ships are likely to be fishing. It can't, for example, prove into Individual vessels are engaged in illegal or unregulated fishing. All we really know is there's a boat of a certain size in a certain location, and our models can can tell the likelihood it is a fishing boat. Big data and AI is no substitute for governments sharing information about specific vessels that they have information on. Kruzma is hoping the report will encourage governments to share more shipping data publicly to improve ocean management and conservation. 
The report has sparked interest among fisheries industry leaders in the Pacific. Rhea Christian Moss, the executive director of the Western and Central Pacific Fisheries Commission, says the technology Global Fishing Watch is using could be taken up by the commission and governments in the region. It's just showing what available technology can do now and how it is becoming increasingly difficult to literally hide under the radar. Um, So, you know, for that aspect, I thought it was super encouraging just to sort to see this this these tools coming out as um, being potentially available to help with detecting IUU fishing activity. But she says the data is no replacement for having fisheries observers based on ships, something the Pacific is in dire need of. Having a human observer on board a vessel gives you the best access to what's happening on the vessel. Um, we are currently working on electronic monitoring using cameras on board, and that's another way to get information on what on what these vessels are doing but as i said there's a there's a huge number of longline vessels in particular operating on the high seas that are not monitored um, by human observers or by electronic monitoring and so it, it just reflects a big gap in this fishery in papua new guinea much of its southern waters including the torres strait protected zone are fully monitored according to sylvester pokajam president of png's fishing industry association However, a porous border with Indonesia presents a problem out of the PNG government's control. There is still illegal fishing, by especially people from uh, the fishermen from Indonesia, fishing in the illegally. Uh, I think it's every day. He'd like to see PNG invest in more surveillance for its fisheries. It is very, very important that Papua Guinea continue to maintain the system itself, like the, the vessel monitoring system and the VDS itself, uh, to make sure that there is no illegality happening in the area of fishing and to make sure that we get the maximum results, maximum return from the management of this fishery. Not only that, but we want to ensure that all our fisheries remain sustainable, which they are now at the moment. Fisheries management isn't the only concern raised by the Global Fishing Watch report. David Kruzma says the data also shows non-fishing shipping activity is outpacing fishing, in some cases posing just as much of a threat to wildlife. The noise of tankers and cargo ships is making, uh, you know, has lots of impact. You have oil spills from oil platforms and oil vessels, even small small spills that go undetected. And all of that stuff adds up. Um, the largest risk to whales is no longer whaling. It is collisions with cargo vessels and tankers. And so all of this human activity needs to be mapped out and monitored so that we can better manage it. He says the data will also improve estimates of greenhouse gas emissions by country. And that's Mackenzie Smith with that report. Now stay tuned, because up shortly will be your news wrap brought to you by producer Carla Evans. Newsroom 40. Hosted by me, Sam Wikes. And me, Tenerao Aruna. Each week, we'll bring you Pacific Islander stories from on and off the rugby league and rugby union field. We'll have plenty of special guests, tales from the past, tackle the big topics of today, and look forward to the next-gen Nijan Footy stars. Nijan Footy. Nijan Footy. Monday afternoons at 4 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia.
That is right. It is that time where we head around the region. And, of course, we try and see what is happening out with our Pacific neighbours. And that's brought to you with your news wrap by producer Carl Evans. With that, I say good morning, sir. Good morning to you, Aggie. It's, uh, it's lovely to be back. Isn't it? I would say this is our first time back together for 2024. Hopefully you had a good Nice long break. It is. It, uh, it, uh, it was long, but it got to feel short now when you look back on it, doesn't it? <laughs> Isn't it? Well, it's only Monday now. Uh, let's get straight into it. Now, goodness, if there's not one story coming out of PNG, there is always another one where there's a woman arrested over an alleged uh, drug smuggling plot that's been linked to companies that reportedly received uh, refugee fund payments from Australia. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So this is in relation to Mei Lin, who was arrested for allegedly trying to smuggle 15 million worth of drugs uh into Australia from PNG last year. So we've got a new update on that story. It was reported by the ABC's Tim Swanston. Um, he described her as a prominent prominent business identity in PNG uh, who was listed as a director and shareholder of numerous successful companies, some of which include nightclubs and real estate in places like Leigh and Port Moresby. And some of those interests reportedly received payments out of a refugee resettlement fund uh, provided by the Australian government back in 2021. So those funds Funds were part of a PNG humanitarian program. It was a scheme designed to support refugees who had been relocated from Manus Island. And her links to those payments have, have raised some concerns uh, within PNG government circles, especially given some of her business interests actually overlap with political figures, one of which is the former Deputy Prime Minister, uh, Moses Maladina. Well, I'm wondering, has Mr. Melodina addressed those concerns? Yes, he was pretty quick to do so, I understand. Uh, so he did confirm that his family owns uh, one of the companies who benefited uh, from those Australian government funds. That was Chatswood PNG. Uh, he confirmed on Saturday that Miss Lynn had been employed uh, in the company's property division for a period of about two months. Um, and he also went on to say that Miss Lynn was not associated uh, with that company uh, and that Chatswood and its directors are not in any way associated with the activity of uh, me, Lynn. I'm sure he means those uh, alleged drug activities. I'm still trying to get back to the beginning where you said $15 million worth of drugs. That was yes, quite a goodness. lot. Well, and look, we go from one drug story to another. Uh, police in Fiji have seized more than a tonne of methamphetamine for the second time in two weeks. Yeah, that's right. So pol- Police announced yesterday it had seized uh, one tonne of the drug, some of which was hidden in carver bags. Like you said, it was the second major bust uh, in, in less than a week, actually, and it comes after three tonnes was seized back on January 14. That haul remains under 24-hour surveillance. As for this new batch, uh, it was found in both crystal and powder form and stored in more than 300 containers of 300 different sizes. Uh, some were concealed in carver packets uh, labelled as being made in Fiji, uh, while some were in boxes of tile adhesive. Um, as for those, a 37-year-old businessman from Nandi is currently in custody uh, in connection to the discovery. But uh, but yeah, look, I guess it raises greater concerns of, uh, of you know, just what's getting in and out of potentially <laughs> a, a Fiji. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, good. Look, let's go to some lighter news, though. Uh, the PNG Lewis have claimed the Women's Cricket T20 Pacific Cup. Is that right? That's right. So uh, the PNG Lewis, they've cr- claimed the crown for the second consecutive time, having defeated uh, New Zealand Māori. Uh, by five wickets. So Sabona Jimmy, uh, she led the way taking five wickets with the ball before going on to score 25 runs uh, to lead her team's run chase. Uh, she was very she was backed up uh, by Tanya, who finished with uh, 21 not out. Sky Bowden, meanwhile, was the uh, the best player for New Zealand. She scored 23 runs of her own. Um, bit of a sad end in some ways for the New Zealand girls. Um, it was only the first loss of their tournament, and to lose in a grand final is, uh, is always tough after going undefeated. Uh, and it was their 
debut uh, entry into the tournament as well, so still a, wow. a, a fantastic effort. Of course. Uh, so who actually uh, claimed third place? Vanuatu uh, claimed third, so uh, they defeated Samoa by 23 runs. Um, they got a big year coming up as well, Vanuatu, so they'll be gearing up for a uh, T20 World Cup qualifying tournament, so that's going to take place uh, in a couple of months' time. So uh, I'm sure that was a good hit out for them as they prepare for that. Absolutely exciting. Well, look, nice to end on a good note, uh, but thank you very much, uh, producer Carl Evans, for bringing us our news wrap this morning. Thank you, Aggie. No worries. Tune in to SBS Samoa News on ABC Radio Australia. SBS Samoa News features independent news and stories connecting you to life in Australia and Samoan-speaking Australians by our friends at SBS Australia. SBS Samoa News. Tune in Mondays and Thursdays at 6.05am Samoan time for one hour of news in the Samoan language on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie Dubol. Appreciate your company. As we head to the Cook Islands, where there is a lack of rain in parts of the country, prompting calls for locals on the island of Raratonga to conserve water, with water reservoirs on the Raratonga getting extremely low. Forecasters put the dry conditions down to, uh, down to an El Nino weather system, and some residents are worried what will happen if rain doesn't fall soon. Dubravka Volodier with more. For months now, Mary MacDonald has been dreaming of hearing the drum of raindrops on her roof. Living inland and on higher ground, the Rarotonga resident has seen little rain over the past months. It has been raining, but it's not quite a heavy rain. This dry spell is affecting the island's water sources. You know, we've had rain here and there, but not enough to um, recharge all our mountain streams and groundwater. The spokesperson for the Rarotonga-based water authority, Our Water, is Walter Tuarai. It causes a fair bit of stress with our water supply here because it's totally reliant on rain, unfortunately. In the southern island groups, which includes Rarotonga, water is sourced from springs and streams that rely on rainwater. We have 10 intakes here, uh, 10 mountain streams that feed the island. Currently, we're probably producing about 60% of its capacity. Mr. Tuarai says the higher-lying inland parts of the island, where Mary lives, have been hit hardest by the low rainfall levels. With our system being gravity-fed and with the terrain of Rarotonga, uh, meaning quite a very highly mountainous interior, when we do have a lot of rain and abundance of water, uh, you get enough back pressure in the, in the network to push water back up to our inner main. So unfortunately for those people living in our inland districts, they tend to uh, be without water in um, most periods of the day. Um, those are sort of like, you know, high elevations, uh, they definitely can't get water up there. There's just not enough uh, pressure in the actual system um, to get up there. Mary built big water tanks to collect water for the rainy season. While she has enough of her own water for now... The lack of rain has forced her to ration out what is left. We tend to conserve water now. Less washing, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, turn taps off, not running while you're brushing your teeth. Yeah, things like that. Many others in her close neighbourhood are not so lucky. I see them buying water, so they actually not don't have enough. Um, water tanks, not as big as ours anyway. Mr Tuarai says while residents in these inland areas are the worst affected, 
all Rarotongans are hit to some degree. And he says, like Mary, they can do a lot to save water. Definitely conserve water. Um, you know, fix their leaks around their houses, um, pleading to the um, growers and people like that to shut off the irrigation taps um, and hoses and things like that. Um, leakage is probably the biggest cause of our concern. You know, washing the dishes in the, in the actual sink and perhaps washing it in the tub, things like that, and making sure you're, you know, filling your washing machine up before you actually um, do a wash. Tourists are also encouraged to help by having shorter showers and being mindful about their water consumption. Meteorologist Neville Koop from Nandraki Weather says El Nino is to blame for some of the dry spell in parts of the Pacific, including the southern cooks. Typically with El Nino, uh, the dry conditions generally stay in the west of the Pacific and in the south of the Pacific. Um, and so places like Nauru and Kiribati and the uh, eastern islands of Kiribati around Christmas Island and so forth, Penryn, Northern Cooks, those sort of places have had some good rain. The Southern Cooks, uh, Niue and uh, parts of Tonga have experienced dry weather, as has New Caledonia. Mr Coop says what's unusual this year is that Australia's east coast, which should have also had dry conditions, has had a lot of rainfall. This is not the type of El Nino that we would normally see, I have to say. There is some unusual aspects to this. Whether that is climate change influence or whether that's just natural variability, uh, I, I really couldn't say. But there might be some respite in sight. He says for Cook Island's southern islands, some rain might be falling in a few weeks' time. For residents like Mary, it couldn't come soon enough. Yeah, every drop counts, really. And that's Mary MacDonald ending that report by Dubrovka Volodier. Didn't want to do it again, no, I started born here with the fisheries. I had the water on my yes, one I did. I got over it. But I didn't know him. I in March 2020, Ikiripas Fisheries Observer Eritara Ati Kairoa died mysteriously at sea. But not long after, the death was attributed to natural causes, raising suspicion within his family. The intriguing and devastating case fueled a year-long investigation by the NGO Human Rights at Sea, and the story has now been made into a gripping documentary. This morning, we're joined by the film director, Sarah Papanaus, to talk about this case. And with that, I say welcome to the program, Sarah. Hi, Aggie. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. Really appreciate your time this morning. And again, just listening to a little bit of that trailer, what was it that drew you to this case in particular? You know, before becoming a filmmaker, um, I actually worked in international fisheries policy. And um, working in fisheries policy, of course, we were working to improve um, safety for observers at sea, for, for crew at sea. And so I'd heard of Eritara's case before. Um, so when I transitioned in the, into the documentary filmmaking sphere, um, I was thinking, you know, this is going to be, this is a story that needs to come to light. And then speaking with um, experts, uh, Baba Cook, who, who works to improve observer safety and, and knows the family quite well, um, and said they'd be keen to, you know, to do a film because they're really trying to get the word out there and they still 
they still have no answers. So they're just, they want to do everything they can to make sure to keep pushing this forward and get justice for the family. Uh, you're talking about being in the fisheries um, sector before then. So did, were you aware that there were any other cases similar to Mr. Kairos? Yes. Yeah. No, there's um, plenty of other similar cases. He is, you know, over the past 10 years alone, about 15 or so observers have died under mysterious circumstances. And to my knowledge, I don't think there's been any closure on any of those investigations, um, except for maybe that, that they had died by natural causes. Um, I mean, just, I think, a couple of weeks ago, a Ghanaian fisheries observer passed away. Um, and not to get too graphic, but his, his body was decapitated. And it just, it's it's an ongoing situation. And right now, observers are not safe. Um, not And this, it's a... It's a possibility that it'll keep happening in in the future. Mm. Uh, Sarah, I know you asked you highlight this story itself, but where does it actually leave Mr. Kairo's death? Where does it leave the family? The family is definitely still searching for answers. Um, you know, ever since the his death was declared to be not by natural causes, which initially it was declared a homicide by blunt force trauma, and the second pathology report overturn that. Um, of course, the second pathologist didn't even have access to the body at the time, so that's why there was such suspicions. You know, the case is technically still open. Um, I know the family is hoping to pursue their own or their own investigation, but they've been kind of, you know, been thwarted at the moment in, by, in doing that, and then they're, they're also hoping for a resurgence and a reopening of their case. So if anything, it just brings awareness to them and saying, look, they're still out here. They still want answers. Um, officials have stopped working with them and saying, just, you know, speak to Takara and Nikki. They, you know, at a minimum, hand the case over to them and let them open their own independent investigation. Mm. Uh, the family must be very grateful that you've highlighted, you know, uh, the story. But what have you been able to uncover about the investigation uh, into Mr. Kairua's death? I mean, a, a few things. I mean, when uh, Takara came over, she she had some evidence she kind of collected on her own. Um, she had Eritar's hard drive that was returned to her um, after he passed on the ship. And on that hard drive included a journal entry from his time aboard the Windfar 636, which I'm not sure had been discovered before. Um, and on that journal entry, it wasn't detailed that he had seen um, anything super suspicious, but, you know, we had detailed that the crew had been potentially throwing rubbish overboard. Um, he had detailed that, you know, at times the, the list of bycatch, so the, the fish they incidentally catch, the reports of that were different to his reports, you know, so it's hard to say if, if that would have been the reason, um, for someone to, to kill him, but, uh, you know, it, you, it's a possibility, you know, it's hard to say. Um, and then additionally, we also recovered some CCTV from the vessel um, that uh, was, you know, somehow returned to the family and that they shared with me. And combing through all that, you know, nothing extraordinarily damning, but still finding situations where, you know, they talk about the deep isolation that observers face aboard. And, you know, you find these videos of the entire crew sitting in the mess hall and Eritar is sitting by himself, you know. Mm. Wow, fascinating. I'm, I'm thinking you probably spoke with many people, including some of those workers uh, on board of the ship. What, what have been their stories? What have they said about those conditions and the dangers that they actually face personally? So, interestingly enough, we, we were not able to speak to anyone aboard the Windfar 636. Um, 
most people, you know, on the boat weren't uh, Kiribati. Uh, you know, I believe the crew was likely Chinese or um, Indonesian. You know, it's, there's just lots of different um, peoples from all over the world working on a fisheries boat. Um, in fact, you know, our goal was to, to shoot the film in Kiribati, which is, you know, uh, Eritar himself is from Kiribati, as is his family. That's where the Windfar 6 was docked and, and brought his body back. Um, but Kiribati, unfortunately, would not approve our team of a filming grant, a filming permit, excuse me. Um, and so we actually had to film the entire thing in Fiji and um, flew out Nikki and Takara to meet with us there um, and kind of had to run the whole show from from Fiji itself. Well, I was just about to ask, uh, Sarah, what were sort of the challenges that you did run into in making this film? But was there anything other than that, not having to be able to film in uh, Kiribati? Yes, absolutely. So many challenges. Um, you know, there's a lot of key figures in the case that really don't want to talk about it. You know, um, the I, you know, managed to get in contact with one of the pathologists who reviewed um, Eritara's case, and he, he was very strongly, did not want to participate, I think, for fear of, you know, backlash and, and the media's interest. And then on top of that, uh, the film also includes testimonials from Fijian fisheries observers. And, you know, they're detailing some really horrifying circumstances that they've endured while working as fisheries observer. You know, one of them even talking about, you know, just being attacked on a on a deployment he was just on and, and being the crew kind of trying to throw him overboard. But securing those interviews with observers was extremely, extremely difficult because, you know, they're already viewed as some sort of, you know, spy aboard the boat, on, uh, depending on the circumstances. So speaking with somebody like me would kind of elevate that even further. Of course, in the film, their identities are completely, um, you know, they're completely anonymous and then their voices are distorted. But even then, um, it's still a risk. It's still a risk for them to even talk to me. Mm, absolutely. Uh, if you're just tuning in, we are speaking to film director Sarah Pippinas in regards to this documentary called Death at Sea, highlighting a very mysterious death at sea. Uh, well, you know what is interesting? What is it about the nature, though, of their work that sort of maybe puts them in danger? Yeah, so fisheries observers, they work aboard commercial fishing vessels, um, primarily collecting biological data, um, but they're also monitoring for illegal fishing, they're monitoring for labor practices. They're not acting in any sort of enforcement role. They're simply just reporting, you know, things down in their notebook and reporting how many catches the boat is getting. But, you know, the the captain and the crew know that if he's reporting something down that conflicts with, you know, what the boat is saying, like perhaps the 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 captain is noting down that he's catching this much fish, but in reality he's catching, you know, far more, perhaps over a quota. Um, and then knowing the observer is going to actually note down the reality of how much fish they're catching. And then, you know, when he comes back to shore and then that boat is penalized and they have to offload a whole bunch of fish and lose a lot of money. And then, of course, any all sorts of illegal things can happen on boats, shark finning, et cetera, labor practices. So I think that the 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 rest of the crew on the boat view him, unfortunately, or her, as um, you know, as a spy, as somebody against them, not working with them, and that's really not the true reality of the situation. And we're really hoping that this will push for more more trainings for the crew, more trainings for observers to let everybody know that observers are not the enemy. You know, they're they're just someone doing their job on a boat, and if everybody you know, follows the rules, then it, it, there shouldn't be any conflict at all.
Mm, absolutely. And just uh, before we wrap up, I do quickly want to ask, beyond getting answers for the family, though, Sarah, what do you hope this film um, achieves? I, I really hope to see, you know, more international policy being passed to help fisheries observers, you know, at the Western and Central Pacific Commission, which decides um, all the international policies for the Pacific Ocean. They've just opened up, you know, a, a working group looking into the safety of fisheries observers. I hope they actually, you know, pass some sort of policy that um, ensures that observers have these rights. Um, and then in addition, of course, passing of agreements like the Port State Measures Agreement, the Cape Town Agreement, that all protects observers. And then honestly, you know, speaking to everybody in Fiji, they were just stressing that implementation of what's already required um, is is so necessary um, and making sure observers, you know, they have a contract when they go on board. They're outfitted with all the right safety equipment. They have a two-way satellite device to be able to speak to their family, CCTV on board, all that type of stuff will ensure our observers stay safe. Sarah, really just uh, exciting to know that you've uh, participated in this piece and we look forward to actually watching the whole thing. Um, But we just want to say thank you very much for sharing this morning. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Aggie. No worries. That, of course, is Film Director of Death at Sea with Sarah Pippinaus. Well, it really much brings us to the end of the show here. Uh, we appreciate your time this morning. We want to recap today's top story. Papua New Guinea Governor for East Sepik Province, Alan Bird, said he would resign if he was James Marape, echoing a growing number of MPs calling for his resignation. If I was Prime Minister, I would have resigned. And But on the other side, I mean... Who do we replace James Marape with? I'll be back at the same time tomorrow, 6 a.m. PNG time. Remember, you can hear us this afternoon at 3 p.m. PNG time. Stay tuned because ABC Radio Australia has your news next. And coming straight up after that, of course, it is the duo, Michael Chow and Jacob Maguire with Nisha Daly. Until next time, I'm Aggie Dubol, and you've been tuning in to Pacific Beat.